0: Now there's a term for everything nowadays, isn't there? Farm to fork and farm to face and sort of zero waste and all of that. Well, you know, you just didn't waste. That's for sure you didn't waste. So every single scrap was eaten up. And of course, because we grew things in the kitchen garden as well, if you grow something yourself, I can tell you, you use every single scrap of it.
1: For well over three decades, Darina Allen has been tempting would-be chefs and curious food folk from around the world to a single buconic corner of East Cork in her native Ireland. The lore, Her world-famous cookery school, Ballymaloe, And her mission? To fundamentally change our relationship with food, farming and the land for the better. Under the tutelage of her late mother-in-law, the pioneering chef Myrtle Allen, Tarina has gone on to become the face, voice and the boundless energy behind a quiet culinary revolution. She's penned 19 cookbooks, made countless TV shows and steered the course of Irish and international cookery away from trickery, fuss and foam and towards farm-fresh ingredients, time-honoured techniques and sensible farming practices. At 71, her enthusiasm is undimmed and she's got ideas and answers aplenty. I'm Josh Fennett and I'm pleased to say that Dorena Allen joined me in London, here for the big interview. Dorina, you've made a rather fabulous career in food, <laughs> a wonderful cookery school, an incredible number of cookbooks, but I'd like you to cast your mind back to Leash, to the Midlands of Ireland in the 50s and 60s <laughs> and to the breakfast tables or dining tables of your youth. What would you have been eating when oh, you were growing up at this time?
0: My goodness. Well, I'm the eldest of nine children, a typical big Irish family at that time and I lived in this tiny country village and I was so fortunate that my mother loved to cook and she cooked every day and she made soda bread almost every day of her life almost. So we had a kitchen garden and we had a house cow so we drank raw milk and uh, reared chickens for the house. So that was my norm. So I suppose if you asked me about breakfast, it would have been generally a big bowl of porridge or something, particularly in the winter. And then we went to school down at the bottom of the village and I hadn't realised actually until relatively recently how important it was that Mummy had got permission for us to come home for our lunch. And so we'd run up the hill really fast and when we came into the kitchen, there'd be a smell of some lovely stew or something bubbling on the stove and then Then we'd race back down to get as much playtime as possible. But then in the winter, she'd make things like steam pudding for us. And the whole subliminal message was the importance of food. Our food was our medicine to keep us from getting colds and flus and things in the winter. And that sort of always stuck with me, the importance of putting energy and whatever resources you could into the food on the table.
1: And it sounds like an idyllic time, but these were also rather straightened times in Ireland in some way. Was there a sense of having to do a lot with a little or to make the most of these kind of raw ingredients? Or was it a time of, of plenty and was um, it very Well, idyllic?
0: in a way, I never felt because we were almost self-sufficient. My father actually was a village merchant. In other words, there was one shop in the village which was owned by my grandfather, my father. So in other words, my family, now you would call them entrepreneurs, of course. They just provided for all the needs of the village and everything. So we'd have biscuits and various other things as well. But I do remember, of course, and learned from my mother how to use up every scrap. So this, I mean, now there's a term for everything nowadays, isn't there? Farm to fork and, and farm to face and sort of zero waste and all of that. Well, you know, you just didn't waste. That's for sure you didn't waste. So every single scrap was eaten up. And of course, because we grew things in the kitchen garden as well, if you grow something yourself, I can tell you, you use every single scrap of it. So I learned how to make delicious things out of leftovers and so on. Um,
1: We'll come to your (laughs) your kind of achievements over time in basically equipping a generation or two or three of Irish chefs with your philosophy on food and on life. But while we're kind of dwelling in the past, I can't really imagine you ever lacking confidence or ever (laughs) not knowing what you wanted to do. So tell me about the young Dorina who went off to Dublin to study (laughs) hotel management. What was in your head?
0: Well, gosh, I think actually, do you know something, back to my family business, the grocery and all of that as a child of course ran in and out and I would serve and pull a pint or whatever so I think that must have given me some of the the sort of social skills I bet I was hopelessly precocious but anyway and my father in fact died when we were 14 when I was 14 so basically mummy brought us all up so I was sent as my sisters were to boarding school to the Dominican nuns in Wicklow and this was in the early 60s now and they were always considered and still are to be very visionary nuns so at that time most people would have stayed at home when they got married and you Know, looked after their family and all of that. But my nuns were encouraging us girls to have a proper career, do the sciences, architecture, medicine, or whatever. And of course, all I wanted to do was to cook or to garden. They were the only two things I knew anything about, you see.
1: Did you ever countenance another career? or Did anything slip I mean, into your mind? You thought maybe I'll do really. that.
0: Not really. I mean, my friends did law and everything. But this was the only thing I knew anything about. And I, I loved cooking because uh, it was always going on around us at home in our kitchen. By the time you'd tidied up from one meal, it was time to, to start another. And we always. Sat down around the kitchen table, which I still think is so important to hang on to, because even if you're only arguing, you're keeping the lines of communication open. So, anyway, when I persisted that I still wanted to to cook, they encouraged me to do either hotel management or degree in horticulture. So I opted for hotel management. At the end of that, you know, I just wanted to, still wanted to cook. But remember long before you were born, men were chefs and women could run tea shops or something like that or keep out of mischief generally. So I couldn't get in and you never know in your life what's the tiny thing that sometimes can change the course of the rest of your life. And in my case, it was meeting one of the senior lecturers in the corridor one day and at that stage, virtually everybody in my class had already got a job. You'd start off by being an assistant manager in one of the top hotels and you'd have a little uniform and a badge And but I was desperate to learn more about fresh herbs and I had a fixation about making homemade ice cream and souffles and she told me I was far too fussy but she said to me, funny, the other night I was having dinner with friends and they were talking about this woman down in Cork who seems to have opened a restaurant in her own house right out in a farm in the middle of the country and she writes the menu every day, they're near the seas so depending on what fish comes in from the boats in that little harbour near them and you know what's in their garden and all that and they have a Jersey herd so they make homemade ice cream and they have their own pigs and they have a walled garden with fresh herbs. I just couldn't believe it was like ticking all the boxes and I said oh that sounds absolutely perfect and she couldn't remember the woman's name so she said leave it with me, I'll ask my friend. She came back with a piece of paper a few days later and put it into my hand she said this is the name of the woman and of course the name on the piece of paper was Myrtle Allen who became my mother-in-law so I became a member of the family by the simple expedient of marrying the boss the sun. So, so the rest is, as you might say, history.
1: Well, well, it's amazing mm. that intervention of what could have been an assistant manager in the Shelburne turned yes. into this rather <laughs> rural, rather different way. I think you're right to draw attention to the fact that while the practices that you are preaching now are broadly popular, at the time it would have been seen as rather unusual.
0: Yeah, but I'll tell you what. I'm, sadly. Not enough has changed in that direction because really the message, not even subliminal message nowadays, is that the skills that are really important are the academic skills and that the practical skills are of much lesser importance. And this is a big mistake. My goodness, we've let now two generations at least out of our houses and out of our schools without equipping them with the basic life skills to feed themselves properly or feeding right into the hands of the multinational food companies. We've handed over complete control over the most important thing in our lives really our food to the supermarkets and it's not their responsibility. Our health is not their responsibility. So basically I feel we're really failing in our duty of care to our children and the next generation by not equipping them with the basic Basic practical skills to make a little meal for themselves. You know, all I could really do was actually scramble eggs or whatever, you know, and with that basic skill, I've had a really interesting life. I now have what I absolutely love. It's actually a privilege to be able to pass on cooking skills to the next generation. I mean, I could be teaching algebra or geometry or something, and of course, it's hugely important, but you can't eat a flipping mat's book. And and yet the look on somebody's face when you teach them how to make a loaf of bread or a soup, or it actually touches their lives. It's something they're going to use every day. So I feel fortunate that I've found something that I totally love doing and feel like jumping out of bed still every day at 71 years of age. Don't jump out quite as fast as I used two years ago, but still...
1: Well, I think you're, you're very humble and very generous to attribute that to luck, but obviously the great Myrtle Allen, your mother-in-law, mm. and this woman that taught you so much saw something in you or read something in that letter. How did that relationship develop? You arrive and she was immediately <laughs> welcoming and kind and everything was perfect?
0: Uh, well... For the moment I came to Bamloo, actually, I loved it. And Myrtle was in the kitchen all the time at that stage, and she basically reinforced all my mother's values. And actually, at hotel school, of course, it was an excellent hotel school, but we were being taught how to do things most efficiently and how to use processed foods and things that were already prepared and everything. But again, another term for this nowadays, everything, of course, was done from scratch, you know. And the menu was written depending on what was... Best and most beautiful that day and was all about providing a wonderful experience for the guests. So I met a sort of soulmate. I mean, how fortunate was I that our paths crossed in life. I mean, I know not everybody says that about their mother-in-law, but uh, she was always so supportive. When I went on to do television, write books and everything. And you see, she, at that stage, Myrtle had no training whatsoever. She just... Opened, it was Ballymaloo House, was the first country house hotel, probably in the British Isles, actually. So it was considered to be super crazy to open a restaurant miles out of a city. I mean, I was literally cooking side by side with her and I was like a sponge. I soaked up everything she said and was excited by learning and learning and learning and learning all the time.
1: And I think a lot of people would look at your career and would be very interested where the impetus to start the famous or now famous Ballymalloo Cookery School came from. The life sounds fairly comfortable. You'd met Tim, you were (laughs) living in a lovely place. Why would you put yourself through the trouble of of doing what your parents did as entrepreneurs and starting your own business? And how did that come about?
0: Well, you know, I always say that the Ballymalloo Cookery School was born out of desperation. And with the cooking school then, I'd been cooking in Ballymalloo Kitchen, and then we had four children, and we were in horticulture. My husband had taken over the horticultural unit that his father had started. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, for us in Ireland there was the perfect storm really. There was another big recession there was the oil crisis and there was 25% inflation. We were heating five acres of greenhouses that really needed an investment, which we absolutely didn't have as a penniless young married couple. And we'd gone into the EU. The supermarkets had come on stream and the whole cheap food policy had kicked in.
1: Flooded the market.
0: Yeah. And everybody began to think that cheap food was their right, really. So instead of getting a bit more for your beautiful produce every year, you got less. And so we had five acres. We used to grow five acres of tomatoes. We had. A big mushroom farm, 65 acres of apple trees, so this was a big horticulture operation going from being very profitable to literally almost losing the roof over our heads with these four small children. It was really panic time. Then I remember we used to sell our produce into the wholesalers, beautiful produce. We had graders, you know, this was not a Mickey Mouse operation. And then somebody said, oh, forget about the wholesalers. The supermarkets are the thing of the future. And so we were thrilled to bits. We got a contract to sell apples into one of the big supermarket chains which are still very successful in Ireland and somehow or other you never seem to be paid quite what they said and there was always this thing of sending back things if they could find one little apple with a bruising or something and then I remember on one day we used to have a lovely little moment every day where I would get the kids off to school early. My husband would be up early going into Cork with the produce. And then he'd come back from Cork and the kids would have gone to school and we'd have breakfast together. Lovely little quiet moment every day. And I always remember one day, this was another seminal moment, when he came into the kitchen door and he said, I don't care if I have to crawl on my knees. We're never doing that again. We have to find a different way to earn a living. And that is a very long answer to the question you asked me about five minutes ago about how did the school come about? So then we had to, I mean, remember now when I was at boarding school, I had no ambition whatsoever. I didn't want to be a career woman like my lovely Dominican nuns wanted me to be. I just wanted to find a nice chap, preferably with some money that I could, you know, have a few cute little kids and paint my nails and go on picnics. So I had no intention. Part of
1: me thinks you'd never have been happy with that anyway. But how, well, did, how did you end up in front of the bank manager with it? With well, with a cooking school <laughs> as, a, as well, an ba- idea. Ba- so
0: we had to try and think, you now what talents have we? What resources have we? We have a 100-acre organic farm. So we converted some farm buildings into a little cooking school. was opened in September 1983. But you mentioned the bank manager. Back to the big recession in Ireland at that time, same kind of conversation. And now this is a time as well when women didn't go into the bank manager in general. Uh, but we somehow or other worked out that we needed 18,000, I remember, to convert. And a friend of ours who was an economist, he said to me, you can't go into the bank manager with that on the back of an envelope. You've got to, you know. But I learned off what to say. And then I borrowed a little suit and made an appointment to the bank manager. In, in And then I went to him and told him about this fantastic idea I had to actually start a cooking school out in farm buildings in Shanagarry. I, I thought, take it
1: you believed that, though. I did believe it
0: oh yeah I was sure I was no but you know desperation is a brilliant thing it because you know your back is to the wall it has to work he was so nice everybody said the bank managers were dreadful and he was so nice and he sat back in his chair and he listened and I remember him giving me tea and biscuits people say bank managers never give you tea and biscuits so and then he said at the end now I would know what this meant nowadays but uh, he said to me at the end oh that sounds really fascinating I'll discuss it with my colleagues well I would have known that that's no but a week later a letter came saying and the, I wish I'd kept that letter because it was more or less you know we need to save you from here (laughs) But And and no, basically, was the answer. And then I remember my father-in-law saying to me, leave it with me and I'll Talk to Myrtle about it. But years later, i about 20 years later, you I. Tell came, me he
1: came into the cookery school. I, no,
0: he didn't, but I met him at something or other and at a drinks party, something. I said, Do you remember me? Do you remember me coming into you and asking you for money? And he said, Oh, I remember as well. And I said, Well, I couldn't. I was so taken in. I was sure you thought it was a great idea, you know. And I said, Well, what were you thinking? And he said, Well, look, once you started, you were so enthusiastic about the whole thing. I thought I might as well sit back and enjoy it. And I said, I bet you're sorry. Now I've borrowed a Lot of money since <laughs> but anyway so we got started in September 1983 and then I remember my parents and all saying to me we oh, think you should call it Ballymaloo Cooking School so of course that was incredible compliment to me that they believed in me and also I felt a huge sense of responsibility to really deliver on the expectation that that name generated.
1: And if we flash forward, I mean, people wouldn't have to look far to see the success, all of the amazing graduates that have come through the school, all of the things that you've taught them, uh, not to mention, as you said, your TV shows, your books sold in the hundreds of thousands of copies. But I had the good fortune two years ago, I believe, to come to Ballymaloo to do a story for Monocle magazine. And you told me something curious that I'd like to ask you about, that the first (laughs) recipe you teach students is a recipe for soil?
0: Uh, uh, well, you're close. It's actually the first recipe I give them is how to make compost.
1: Sorry, I was close. And,
0: well, you're very, very close. So basically, the school operates the whole year round, but we do three-month certificate courses. On the first day, the first morning, the first thing I do is I introduce them to the gardeners and the farm manager, and maybe I'll have a bunch of carrots or something, and I say to them, look at these lovely carrots. It took Eileen three months to grow these Carrots, three months, and don't you dare boil the hell out of them when you get them into the kitchen. And then we go out into the fruit garden, and Eileen will have a wheelbarrow full of soil there. And actually, it's humus, in fact. And they stand around me in a big semicircle, you know, wondering what's coming down the line and feeling a little awkward. And I just run my hands through the soil and I say to them, Remember, this is where it all starts in the good earth and the soil. And they're looking at me and thinking, Oh my God.
1: <laughs> what have say, I got myself in for? Didn't say
0: anything about this in the brochure, and they're thinking, oh, some aged hippie on a mission or something. But I have to shock them out of thinking that food is just something that comes wrapped in plastic off a supermarket shelf. I need them to think about how it's produced where it comes from I need them to think about the feed for the animals the breed the the variety etc etc it's all the better if I can find a few little worms in this wheelbarrow full of soil but then it's even more interesting for me I think because what is in that wheelbarrow has come from the compost heap and it's now at the final stages of compost which is called humus when life comes back into it and that actually has been made from the scraps from the morning's cooking that have gone onto the compost it's broken down down and life has come back into it and that is what we feed the soil with I mean if I come back another time I want to be a soil scientist because there's so much going on because our health everything comes in the soil but I quote then one of the many wonderful quotes from Lady Eve Balfour and I say to them remember the health of the soil the health of the plant the health of the animal and the health of the human are all one and indivisible So we're totally dependent on that four or five inches of soil around the world for our very existence. Farmers are really worried about the diminishing fertility of the soil because we've wrecked the soil by very intensive monoculture over the years. And we can't go on with business as usual. We simply have to go back. And I mean, as a farmer... I feel a strong responsibility that whatever I grow and we have, we sell a little of our excess produce from our little farm shop on the farm and at the farmer's markets. And I just feel a strong responsibility that I can look somebody straight in the eye and know that that food is going to nourish them rather than make them ill, which is what's happening with a lot of food nowadays.
1: And Dorina, you've been proved right over time. I mean, these are opinions that are slowly working their way into the mass media. They're opinions that people are slowly beginning to agree with. But you have held this idea for a longer time. How hard has it been to convince people, or to even get to this point in the debate, where people countenance the health of the soil?
0: There's a lot of chat about the fertility of the soil now, because I think people are really beginning, and not just beginning, but realise the connection between fertile soil and good health. Also, there's been an enormous amount of work done on the link between the health of our gut biome and both our mental and physical health. And that, when you think of it, it's like so obvious. At the school, we're very lucky we have a little dairy herd, so we also have raw milk for people if they want to drink it. But we notice, this is sort of anecdotal, because I've watched this over 30 years, the difference in people's energy level and their skin and so on when they're with us for three months. But now this is all scientifically proven. And also the other interesting thing that's happening actually, which is for the last five, six, seven courses, we've had at least one doctor, sometimes two. And on this course at the moment, we have three doctors on the 12-week certificate cooking course. And these are doctors who come, they all come for the same reason, they tell me, that basically they feel because the medical training, there is no training in nutrition, even still, although a lot of the young doctors are now demanding that they're given the proper information so they can answer their patients' queries properly. And so many of the patients are presenting with conditions that can be at least helped and often cured by a change of diet. But one of the problems is, where do you get this nutrient-dense food? I mean, a lot of people don't have time to buy directly from farmers, but there are other ways of the alternative routes to market, retail routes to market developing. Over here you have Farm Drop and we have neighbour food in Ireland. You can buy online and then the farmers get 80% of the price, which is fantastic because so many farmers are not being paid enough any longer to produce nourishing, wholesome food, which is a real problem. And that's as opposed to, I suppose, between 25 and 30% of the retail price if it's going through a supermarket. So that's important. And also I'm always encouraging people to try to grow something themselves again.
1: And you mentioned the number of doctors that have gone on the course. I think you're in a very unique position, both as a commentator, an expert on the food industry, someone who knows how to farm, to also see people's changing attitudes to food, the different types of people that pop up on the course. Are there bankers on sabbatical? Are there people that want to start a food job? Are there voyeurs who just want to cook better for their family? What kind of person well, is drawn to the we school? we
0: have, well, on the present course, there are 11 nationalities. But we have people from people starting off knowing they want to be chefs. There could be a couple of gap year people. We get refugees in the city of London and dentists everything we haven't had an astronaut yet but everybody needs to be able to cook it doesn't matter what you do it's one of the easiest ways to win friends and influence people you can get a job anywhere in the world.
1: And and your philosophy has obviously evolved over time I don't think it's cheeky to ask what you've learned from the students over the time as well do they oh, keep my teaching goodness. you?
0: absolutely they do and because of students from India Sri Lanka from Japan China everywhere oftentimes they ask, can they cook me something? So lots of my recipes that are in cookbooks and everything have somebody's name on them. But in the end I just want to go back again to talk about my mother, No Martel, who was such, she had no idea that she was such a maverick. That She didn't realise that what she was doing, she was so much ahead of her time. And all the values that I'm talking about now and have built on were her innate values, basically. And I remember she died last year at the age of 94 after an extraordinary life. And she was I think really almost to the end, almost unaware of the impact she'd had, not just only in Ireland and the UK, but also globally. And I remember somebody interviewing her and saying, well, Marty, you were so much ahead of a time. You were such a pioneer. And she said, oh, well, if you live long enough, they come round to you in the end. (laughs) It was like it had all come full circle. And the funny thing is somebody said to me recently that in America now, the new big thing is to eat real food. Hello. (laughs) How about that for a full circle?
1: And Darina, as we've talked about a little bit already, you were one of the first people to get up on your soapbox and talk about these important issues of biodiversity, of freshness, of teaching people, (laughs) and about the health benefits of food. There is another conversation going on about food being framed as being slightly more unhealthy. I'm talking, of course, about milk alternatives. I'm talking about veganism. I'm talking about Mm. people wanting to eat no meat, less and better meat. Where do you stand on that kind of cultural shift?
0: Oh my goodness me, there's so much misinformation out there as far as I can see and there's a sort of desperation and a huge confusion. People trying to make some kind of sense of all the different kinds of advice. One week it's eat no beef, the next week it's eat plenty of beef. Then it's all so much of an emphasis on the plant-based diet now. But the real problem is that The whole cheap food policy, there's no such thing as cheap food. In health terms and socioeconomic terms, it's a complete and absolute disaster. We have to pay the farmers enough to actually produce wholesome, nourishing food. What's happening now, and even in Ireland, and there was a European-wide survey there a couple of months ago, and so in Ireland, 46.9% of all the food that's bought in supermarkets is ultra-processed food. We are destined to be the most obese country in Europe, by 2030. So we are in a super mega crisis. In all of our countries, our health service can't cope and they won't be able to cope until somehow a huge amount of money is spent on getting the basic message across that we need to eat real food. People are not imagining the food intolerances and the allergies. There might be a tiny bit of that in it. But in general, people are not imagining that they feel bloated or get rashes or whatever after they eat a very squishy sliced pan or something. And actually, it's interesting. I was running the cooking school for three years when this girl from the north of Ireland was called to the phone. She said she'd love to do the three-month course, but there was a problem. She was a celiac. I was running the school for three years, and I had to ask her what a celiac was. So fast forward to now between I suppose a quarter and a third of all the students will say they have some kind of intolerance or if they're celiac they're celiac, that's a disease and it's lifelong but now by the end of the 12 weeks I guarantee you that nobody will still be dairy free or will have a gluten intolerance or whatever because they're eating 48 hour fermented sourdough bread, they have the choice to drink raw milk, they have uh, organic food but basically they're eating a completely different kind of food and they cannot get over how different they feel and so their big mission when they leave us is to link in with local farmers to if they're starting a business to try and develop a network of small producers to buy from around them and then Now, if you go in for a coffee, you get this big long spiel about, do you want a soya milk, a coconut milk? I don't know, the whole long thing, because I just close my ears to the whole thing and say, no, I just want whole milk, please. None of your low fat, skinny anything, just the real deal. So that's what we need. But it's so hard for people to find it. And, you know, people are going around feeling properly on well a lot of the time and you see everybody's so busy it's not like you can just swing by a farmer's market in the middle of the day or something you know so this is a real dilemma
1: and as i flash forward to ireland today and i think it's in no small part thanks to your influence (laughs) i'm aware of a good number of restaurants cafes bakeries started by alumni of your fine school but there is a bit of a food moment happening in Ireland at the minute isn't there there is a bit of a, a an, an upwelling of confidence and of great food in Dublin and far beyond
0: yeah well there definitely is but at this stage, you I mean the school will start in 1983 we'd we want to be having some fresh but of course there are many many different influences but yeah we've got lots and lots of Michelin starred restaurants in Cork County alone we have four mission-starred restaurants but in a way the kind of food that I teach at the school though is not you know hasn't got lots of twiddles and bows and smarties on top no skid marks on plates or foams or whatever uh, It's quite right <laughs> as well <laughs> it's more simple cooking the food very simply, but Ireland is no longer just the land of corned beef and cabbage. All over the country, in the pubs and the little hotels and guesthouses and B and B's and restaurants, you can find fantastic food. Dublin, Cork, Galway, anywhere. And of course, we're so blessed by nature in Ireland. We have a long growing season, a long coastline. So basically, we're very favoured by nature to produce really good quality produce. And then, as any cooker chef will tell you, it's all about the produce
1: and Dorina a last question for you book number 19 36 years of running the cookery school what's the one top tip that you've learned over that time it can be a technique for boiling an egg it could be owning a mandolin what's the one bit of advice I can ask you that you think has made life a little bit easier in an otherwise hectic culinary <laughs> schedule
0: oh my goodness I think sit down after your day's work, sit down and enjoy something at the kitchen table. Whether it's just an omelette and a glass of wine, but sit down and let the cares and the worries of the day slip away, as you enjoy a little special moment at the kitchen table.
1: Doreen Allen Thank you so much. <music> And my sincere thanks to Darina Allen. Her latest cookbook, One Pot Feeds All, is out now and published by Kyle Books. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Jolene Goffan. The researcher was Naomi Potter. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.